digest this more, shall you say, or whatever. I just totally <laughs> fucked that up, but whatever. Uh, you know, we'll digest this more. We'll chew on it, you know, let it work its way through our digestive tract and cut all that out, Tony. Uh, so. <laughs> And welcome, everybody, to episode 10 of Digesting Cinema with Christina and Aaron, or Aaron and Christina, whichever order you prefer. I'm Aaron, as you know, and as always, I'm here with my host, Christina. How are you doing today? I am doing great. I'm very excited to talk about this movie. It's been so long since I've seen it, and now watching it again as an adult, I'm so excited to talk about it. This is, uh, we're finally reversing roles from the first episode. This is a movie you have visited before earlier in your life. This is a movie I haven't seen, and we are covering movies under 90 minutes this week. And our movie is Rob Reiner's directed Stephen King adaptation, Stand By Me. A classic for a lot of people I know. Not what I was exactly expecting, even though I knew a lot of the seminal moments ahead of time, because it's this movie is just so ingrained in pop culture. But mm -hmm. wow, emotional, 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 really, really uh, enjoyed it. I don't want to spoil too much of that before the ratings, but this is not going to be a Blair Witch episode. Fortunately. Yeah. So what were your kind of before we uh, hop into the synopsis, I always like to kind of do the first or second first thoughts. What were your thoughts going into this for a second time? Did you remember or did you realize how much this was going to affect you seeing it later in life no because i only really remember the big parts of it like i remember the running from the train i remember the leeches but like mm -hmm. honestly all of the really emotional parts i didn't really remember but probably because i never connected with them because i was probably like late high school early college and i just didn't care about anybody else but myself so like i just didn't empathy i guess just wasn't a character trait i had yet no i don't think it's even that i think it's just that like this is a movie that's about kids, but it's written by adults. It's clearly for adults about kids. Right. And a lot of it is things that you can't really relate to until you've gone through them in life. And we'll definitely dive into that further as we get into this. Yeah, definitely excited to talk about this movie. I'm kind of glad I didn't see it earlier in my life because I feel like I kind of saw it at the right time at my age and kind of with some of the things that have been going on in my life lately. But before we get into that, Christina, get us back on track with our synopsis. Okay. As always, guys, I just like to steal the really short version on IMDb because I feel like it just gives us a nice overview and then we can kind of get into more detail as we go. Um, so after the death of one of his friends, a writer recounts a childhood journey with his friends to find the body of a missing boy. Yeah. And that is basically the basic wow. skeleton plot of the movie. I mean, and it, we can just kind of dive right into it. The opening, it opens with a newspaper article saying some attorney named Chris Chris Chambers got stabbed mm -hmm. and it was like, okay, who's Chris Chambers? Who's this dude? Right, sitting in a truck. Yeah. Yeah. Sitting in a truck. Like, is he looking at kids? Like what's going on? Is this guy like guy who causes the dead body to happen? I like was kind of confused. Uh, I also thought this was a movie from like the fifties. So I was like, this seems like it's taking place in the eighties or something like, or like later on. So, and then it turns out to be a flashback. It was our main, I guess you could say our protagonist and Gordy goes by, you know, Gordy kind of gets into right away. I'm like, man, this seems like Sandlot. I saw the Sandlot. Sandlot's looks like, like looks like him. Sandlot just straight up 
took this movie and just Disney-fied it. There's moments with a dog and a fence and like running over the fence, the 50s, like setting the caricatures, the treehouse. Like there's just so many things about this. And I grew up with the Sandlot. I'm definitely glad I grew up with the Sandlot as opposed to Stand By Me. Um, (laughs) I just think this movie would have scared the hell out of me as a kid and not like in a cool or fun way, but just in a way where I was like, I'm uncomfortable. And now this dead body, when they show the dead body, it's like, that looks like a real dead body. Uh, That was not fun. Yeah, it's 1959. It takes place in Castle Rock, which is kind of a, I know that's a Stephen King like destination. I know it's a show that Stephen King has on some channel. I know that either his stories take place in Castle Rock or Derry, Maine. So I thought that was Castle Rock's in Oregon, though. So I thought that was interesting. But Teddy and Chris, Vern and Gordo are are four guys. Yeah. Star studied. Like, first of all, who saw John Connolly being uh, Jerry O'Connell? What am I talking yeah, about? Jerry O'Connell. I don't know who John Connolly is. Jerry O'Connell being the glow up out of all four of them. Like he yeah. is, I mean, obviously rest in peace, River, but like Keeper Sutherland's in this movie. Does that was that man ever looking young? Like he looks 35 and he's playing he had a full-on beard. Yeah. When he threw River Phoenix to the ground in that scene. By the way, Chris Chambers is River Phoenix's character. So I don't remember exactly when they revealed the name Chris Chambers, but I know that I specifically noticed on my, I've watched this twice this week. On my rewatch, when you see that scene right at the beginning with the paper, why the writer was really Gordy. And it's just like, this is, and we see at the final scene, the shot of the shot of the memoir or whatever he's writing, talking about how, you know, your friends at 12, but yeah, it's just like Chris Chambers, that character is incredible. River Phoenix, iconic in this role, the cigarettes and the rolled up, you know, white t-shirt, the way they all talked were like kids actually talk. There was swearing, there was slurs. And it's like, I'm not cheering, championing slurs, but it's like, that's what I believe how kids were talking in the fifties and the cigarette. It's just, it wasn't sanitized like Sandlot, you know, and it was just like very real. They're playing cards or just talking about like the French joke is great. They're talking about girls' boobs. They're talking about their own packages. Like, Mm -hmm. I mean, I looked at my husband, I was like, is this what you people do? He's like, oh yeah, we just make fun of each other's dicks all the time. Like, yeah, it's just like, like yeah. <laughs> yeah, and it's like, that's just like what we do. Daddy do camp is played by Corey, Corey Feldman. Oh, and man, he him. is just, you didn't like him? No, I love him. Oh, I was like, i he's my favorite character in this movie, I think. Uh, I just felt so bad for this kid in so many ways. They were able to weave in themes of domestic abuse with his character very organically. And they really kind of crack through in certain scenes where, I mean, the junkyard scene when he defends his father no matter what. And we know that his father put his ear to a stove at one point. Like, I mean, serious, serious physical trauma has happened to this kid. And it's just like, I really, really could understand why he acted so out and was always such a character. I thought like, he was just, I thought all the characters, honestly, all the kids were perfect uh, in their roles. Gordy was the perfect main kid who you don't focus on from the group, but is able to guide everybody through it. Yeah, we'll uh, get more into the kids and I think kind of what they more mean as we go on here. But uh, yeah, let's continue on with the plot, jump into kind of what the main story was, which was Vern running to them. He had to run like, what did he say? Like a few blocks. It wasn't far. Like it wasn't that far for him to- like, I just love that Vern's always like, sincerely, sincerely. 
this is boss guys this is boss like come on this is and then they like kept singing and cutting him off he's like oh never mind and then like we've all been there where we want to tell someone something but like we have to wait for them to be like yeah yeah tell me right and but like and then they're like oh never and then you're like never mind and then they're like oh come on tell us and then you get excited again to tell it's just like oh man it's, like it's such typical middle school behavior and it's just so funny to see that i'm like glad to know that so we jump back in to the main crux of the movie or kind of what the plot surrounds itself around, which is uh, Vern bringing in the news that he knows where a dead body is. There was news about a kid named, I believe it was Brandon Crowder. Right. Crowder. Okay. And right. he had disappeared three days prior going out for blueberries, which is just something you do in the fifties, I guess. And he disappeared, but the way Vern found out about it, I thought was really, really interesting. The character of Vern is just, <laughs> I just see him and my students in the sense of <laughs> the only reason he's underneath the porch digging to overhear the conversation is that he buried like a can of pennies and then mm-hmm. made a treasure map. And then his mom threw away the treasure map. So every day he goes and digs another hole. <laughs> and there was like hundreds of holes underneath that house. It's like, how could you forget where you put it? Yeah. It's like in like you would think he's just completely and he hears his brother and his friend talking about how they found a dead body. And they're like, and it was kind of sad, honestly, the conversation they were having because it was like, well, we can't like talk about this kid. We need to keep it a secret because we stole a car. And like, if we call it in, they're going to trace phone numbers and they're going to, and it's going to result in them getting arrested. They saw it on Dragnet, I think they said or something. So they can't do it. They can't even call in a uh, anonymous phone call apparently because they'll track it and they'll get caught. And, but then the kids kind of pile on particularly Burns' brother is like no one's gonna care anyways like everybody's just gonna forget about this kid like who cares like it was his fault for being out there what an idiot like type of thing so it's just like kind of dehumanizing for like a, to hear a kid so candidly just talk about seeing another kid dead and then diffusing the responsibility and things like that i just found kind of sad yeah it's just that's a rough one because when it's just they're looking for a dead body everybody knows that that's the plot you don't ever think that oh they're looking for a kid and then it's you realize that that's the point of it and it's just crazy that that's generally the plot is that the whole point of this movie because this movie's not long that's why it's you know in this week of under 90 minutes i personally think it could probably could have even been a little bit longer um you know oh, I, I, love the pacing. Yeah. I love the pacing it's one of my favorite i think one of the things that makes this movie the strongest i think if it was longer it really would have felt dragged out pedantic and kind of hitting on themes that they allow a lot of these themes to only been be presented kind of once or more subtly and with it being 89 86 minutes i love i couldn't believe how much they were able to fit in there and the pacing that it kept yeah i mean i we'll talk about this in the ratings i wish the ending maybe would have been a little longer but yeah but i mean that's the whole point and this the whole movie is them trying to find this body and then you obviously see like the it's this is the classic coming of age like when you think of a coming of age movie like you immediately go to this because it goes into their friendships and facing their fears and and mm-hmm. all of that stuff so they opt to go look for this dead body and i think is this where we first meet uh Kiefer sutherland's character when he's like harassing gordy and chris on the street and then like they take the hat and we'll get into Danny a little bit later when we talk about each character a little bit more. You mm-hmm. just find out like this guy just sucks. And not even like your typical bully, just like a terrible human being. Like he plays chicken like in the street. He's- like he's just like scum of the earth. 
Yeah, like he's pretty dangerous. Like what he does to Chris at the beginning there after Chris stands up for Gordy, like threatening to burn his face with a cigarette on the ground after like slamming him down, manhandling him to the point that Chris didn't have a choice but to like apologize instantly because it was a man against a boy. Right. Literally. I mean, it was just like there was nothing. Chris couldn't fight back and have like that just that's how kind of yeah, this bully he's very it's hard to like be like oh this bully's so original because it feels like he's like a bully from so many other movies in a way but it feels like so many aspects of this movie were taken and used for other movies it's i got it vibes and sandlot all of these like and it's like the same bully from all the stephen king books but i'm like even this is like homicidal instead of bullying yeah yeah it was definitely a lot so i really you know do think that there's kind of like three iconic scenes for me that stood out from this. Okay. And one of which is when they, they're now in the woods. They've been camping for, I think, I don't remember how many days at this point or how long it really had been, but Gordy's, you know, talking with Chris on the tree, on the down tree about if he's weird and, you know, Chris is like, yeah, but so is everyone. And it's like, what makes you weird is what makes you you. And it's like, uh, it ends up devolving into Gordy breaking down and feeling like his father hates him. And uh, his father wishes he was dead instead of him. Like, this is what he's dreaming and imagining. Uh, it's just, but that's something I guess we should mention also is that Gordy's older brother, football captain, you know, like town uh, hero. Yeah. Well, future in front of him, everything going on. Great looking kid died in a car accident four months prior to this movie. So, and uh, Gordy refers to himself when I said Gordy blended in earlier, I didn't even realize this, but Gordy refers to himself as the invisible child when he's introduced, saying that the last four months, essentially his parents have been blinded by grief and he just doesn't feel he exists. He's also dealing with his own grief of losing his brother, played by John Cusack, uh, which I thought was a funny little cameo. Yeah. Uh, you know, like he looked like he was 30 still. John Cusack just never has really looked like a young man. It's always funny to see these actors who just like 30 from the 13, right. 13 exactly. going on 30. <laughs> but, Literally. Yeah. What did you kind of think about that scene? And throughout, Chris really shows so much potential. Whilst every time he shows potential and belief in other people, he downgrades himself and talks about how nothing's expected out of me, no matter what. Everybody knows I'm a criminal, even if I didn't do it. Did you do it? Yeah, but... It's because everybody knew everybody's going to blame me anyways. I'm going to try and stay as much to the scene as possible because I don't really want to get into my thoughts of Chris yet because I feel like that's, we could talk, we could spend a whole podcast talking about Chris and his character development. But as Chris pretty much seemed like he was the glue here, you know, he saved Teddy on the train tracks. They mentioned that it's not the first time that he did. He seems to always want to build up his friends um, and he just wants everybody to be in a positive light. So I, I appreciated this scene in the sense of, you know, I'm a girl. Girls talk about everything. So to see a a lot of scenes in this movie where boys kind of have that vulnerability and Mm -hmm. are there for each other. Um, I think it's just really nice to see. And I think it's a positive thing that I wish more young people saw that you are allowed to be vulnerable with your friends and you are allowed to be supportive of your friends. And it's a totally normal thing, even if both of you are boys, that Mm -hmm. that's normal human interaction is that we should be caring about people in our lives and we should be sticking up for the people that we care about and supporting the people that we care about. And that's what Chris does with all of his friends. Yeah. And every group at 12 years old, at least every boy group, I'm sure every girl group too, had the like popular one who's like the reason the group really 
right like kind of forms this together chris was the popular one like it's like right. so i don't think teddy brought all four of these guys together you know yeah. like it's like chris was like yeah like chris is the leader just, yeah he's the leader he really is yeah i agree 100 percent with that so where do you want to kind of go next after that scene i don't think we have to every single scene but definitely the ones that were most impactful that one the train and the leech scene yeah, are the the train. yeah definitely the train was just i mean that's like everyone knows that scene like that is just so good anthony even said he's read the short story and he said like the way that's in the book is also very good um i think it just shows the dynamic of their they i don't know who they're trying to prove their bravery to because they always are throwing around like come on like let's do this like this is what we should be doing and it's like well here's like the safer way to do it no like we're not pussies like we're gonna just do this and Mm -hmm. but it's like you know we're this is a very real situation of like if we go to do this like there's nowhere to go like if a train comes like you know we're screwed and mm-hmm. you know i thought it was really smart uh, that gordy would always try to, to reach down and um feel the train tracks and then you know obviously it's you know the epic scene of him just going train and they just yeah. like all ass <laughs> and it's, it's shot so well so much yeah. of this movie is really shot perfectly that scene just viewing the train the smoke billowing it's such a great iconic moment in this film and I think it's a really good question. And who are they trying to prove it to? And it's just like, exactly. The only one who's willing to kind of sacrifice his masculinity most of the time was Vern, but he would immediately be laughed at for it and like not taken serious for it. And then, you know, a little bit once in a while, Teddy would get lazy and not want to take the long way. But like, that wasn't really masculinity. That was just like Teddy being lazy. I mean, yeah, it's, uh, I mean, the train scene, there's a lot of talks about trains throughout it. The kids know that he was hit by a train. corpse i forgot his name again but yeah exactly he got knocked out of his kids right yeah and then there's the leech scene i think that we had talk about the leech scene that was just disgusting and like just kind of what really stripped the masculinity right off of just about all four of them uh the blood yeah the disgusting yeah it's just like just a great scene like that's they're just having fun they're messing with each other they're ducking each other and it's like all right bud like you think you're getting away from this and it's just you know kids just there's not a care in the world they're just enjoying this time in their lives it's something that it's like you know you miss as an adult i feel like it's something you even think about more now in the situation we've all been in with this pandemic of just like you know when was life carefree and then it's like oh shit we're covered in leeches and one of us has one like on our hoo-ha so yeah yeah which is every boy's worst nightmare yeah so yeah it's it's coming to reality here uh i feel like this movie like single-handedly like ruined the whole leech image for like public like i just feel like people to this day are still afraid of leeches because of this movie this scene if you haven't seen this movie you still know this scene so yeah it's a great scene um and then one more scene that i would definitely like to cover i guess is uh the junkyard scene yeah with with what was the name of the dog was it copper i think it was copper Chopper. and chopper you know straight up reminded me of the dog from the sandlot like the stories of this dog and just like they're at a junkyard with the junkyard owner who you got you the know, legend like, of the dog. Yeah, the that, like hop in the fence. It's just like, I get it. There's homages, which is clearly what the Sandlot was doing. But this movie came out in, what, 1986? And the Sandlot was like 1993. I don't think it's long enough away from this For to like- Totally steal ideas. <laughs> yeah, I think it was straight up just trying to copy and go with it. Make like a PG like, version of Stand By Me. Literally, I think that they sat down before writing Sandlot. And they're like, we need a PG version of the Sandlot. Like, 
Like that's literally, and for sure, I was not anticipating leaving this movie, like comparing so much and like, I hate to do it, but I cannot ever really appreciate the Sandlot again. To be honest, it kind of now I understand. I've always wondered why it didn't have the critical acclaim of like the fandom. And now I understand because movie critics see films and they're aware of when other films start to rip off, which is something I wonder it starts to happen to us as maybe we get further into this whole experiment later on where we're like oh this is like right out of this or right out of that you know it's like this is part of becoming a film critic or whatever but it's just yeah i mean i really thought that the scene was really sad though because this junkyard and a lot of this movie is honestly really sad like oh yeah it's emotional but it's really sad and the junkyard owner is just absolutely like digging into teddy attacking teddy on his abuse attacking teddy on his father clearly teddy is is unhinged by this and you know rather than being the adult i mean he's like i'm gonna call out the parents except for yours because yours isn't around like it's just like well, he's in the loony bin yeah he's in the loony bin. he's like my father stormed normandy i mean this is 1959 so the war had only been 15 years or so i don't know i'm terrible with history this isn't digesting history this is digesting cinema um you know but either way like he's no matter what idolizing his father yeah and they're all like why are you even idolizing this guy at this point like what's wrong with you type of you know he's just like he's a hero he's my dad no matter what like yeah, it's just it's just abuse personified and again, really ahead of its time, even in 1986 to be portraying it the way it did. And with boys, right. really, really effective. Um, I think the last pivotal scene would probably be the ending where yeah. they finally find the body. They show us the body. Gordy gets very affected by seeing the dead body, which again, we'll, when we go back and analyze all the characters more, we'll touch it on all of this. And then the rival gang comes up. So 30-year-old Kiefer Sutherland rolls up and... You know, I don't understand their situation where they roll up like army deep, like, hey, we're just going to beat up these 12 year I don't know why everybody needed to like claim this dead body, but eventually Gordy stands up to them with a gun. They The, the gun was presented throughout them. quite a right. The gun was also presented throughout and kind of just, right. uh, like again, like I think a physical symbol of kind of toxic masculinity. Right. I mean, they when they were, you know, staying guard the one night when the coyotes were out, I mean, truly, you know, you really needed one then because like, like you know, a pack of coyotes is a dangerous thing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, and, you know, Gordy just stands up to everybody, you know, puts a shot in the air and is basically like, bud, do you want to keep messing with us? Not a problem. Like, I am going to shoot you. And then like, I even thought the powerful line was like, what are you going to shoot all of us? And it was like, no, Ace, I'm just going to shoot you. Because he knew that the boys weren't going to do anything. And once Ace wasn't giving them orders anymore, none of those older guys were going to do anything about it. You know, yeah. they're not going to step to him. So, you know, I think it was, and part of me was like, damn, dude, just shoot him. You're in the woods. Nobody's going to know. <laughs> so I'm like, that's, that's a terrible thing to think. But also, yeah. like, this dude sucked. Like, there was yeah. no redeemable qualities. I definitely agree. Ultimately, they decide, you know, to just anonymously turn in the body because the whole point of this is they wanted the fame and the fortune and they brought their comb so they could be on TV. You know, and they decide that they're not going to they're not going to take recognition. They're going to just anonymously do it. And then we kind of get flash forwards of where everybody ended up, which I mean, do you want to just stick that to when we talk about each character then? Yeah, we can just stick. We'll stick to that. Yeah. The reaction when they see the dead body is really quite a moment because you just see it set in on all of their on all their faces. They were like they were lost in the adventure they were lost in the journey but it's like the journey of what it was heading to it's like you know that's very real the first time they've seen a dead body 
I'm sure. And it wasn't grotesque. It wasn't decomposing. It was still completely formed. Right. You could see essentially he just was laying, you know, and it was, yeah, it was, I mean, the trauma that has to have moving forward got to be pretty large. Right. Cause they were afraid that it was going to look grotesque. Like that's one of the things Vern says, you know, what if his eyeballs are getting eaten and blah, blah, blah. Mm -hmm. But I think the thing that resonated with them the most is they looked at someone who was their age. Just a boy. Yeah. It's literally just a, just a kid. Yep. I think they even say that one of them, I think says he's just a kid. Mm -hmm. I think they say that. And it's like, he literally just got like hit by the train off of the, it was like, what could have happened to them just a little while earlier too. So they maybe were having a little bit of, this could have been us very easily or, you know, what were we really doing here and why? And it shows how like they go to high school and they're not, you know, they're not even like close friends. They right. grow apart. You know, you have your friends from when you're 12 and most of us aren't friends with those people anymore or not friends with all of them for sure. Right. And so that's the part that I feel really resonates as you get older and I've gone through it because it's something everybody's gone through. It's so intensely relatable in not a, in a very genuine way. And yeah, that just, I mean, we see the final text on the screen from Gordy's memoir and then he goes out and he's with his family. So Gordy has a family now, I believe that's, you know, about as happy of an ending as we can get here. We don't really know what happens to the rest of the characters. We know what happened to Chris, you know, and that's really a sad story when they go into that and, you know, what really happened there. You know, Chris was an attorney now, I believe a district attorney. So like he did get his shit together. He was able to take the SATs. What did you talk about earlier that he wasn't, you know, so let's dive into the characters. So Vern, the Comic relief. Well, they're all comic relief at different points, but yeah. I'd say Vern's the main comic relief. Yeah, Vern yeah. is like the chunk from Goonies, and it's mm -hmm. just like you know the silly friend. He's the. You could definitely tell he's probably. I do appreciate this dynamic because it is true to real life. Like, yeah, maybe you have a core group of friends, but there's always you know people that are a little bit maybe on the outside, or there's like you know there's two of them that like, you guys were friends first. So mm -hmm. it, was like, it was very clear that it was Chris and Gordy were like the two that like those two were ride or die. And they were friends with the other two and they cared about the other two. But Teddy and Gordy or Teddy and Vern, especially Vern, I think were more on the outside. Vern, mm -hmm. I think was different than them. He, you know, he was chubbier than them. He had the speech impediment. He was their punching bag. He was the, the guy that they always made fun of. You know, eventually you're not going to want to be friends with people like that. Like as you get older and you know, you, the big thing was like, okay, we're moving on to junior high. We're moving on to high school. You're going to meet other people. Mm -hmm. You meet other people that don't do that to you. You don't want to hang out with the people that still do, even though you've known them longer. So yeah. like kind of always seemed like you knew Vern was probably going to venture out, but he seemed like the wholesome one. Like he was kind of more of the scaredy cat. He wanted to make the sound like logical decision. So it was just kind of like, you're only friends with them because you've probably been friends with them your whole life. Like you're, you, got, you don't know, actually want to be around them. Yeah, no, I think that's a really good point. And it's like, unless he had something really to offer, which was information and like, you know, right. like a activity and like a quest, he wasn't going to be included. So like, right. he, that's why he valued kind of that information and ran over. He's like, I finally have something to offer. You right. Know, so yeah, he's, it, I think that they definitely didn't make fun of his weight as much as I was expecting. So I was glad about that. I thought that would have been kind of tropey, but they made fun of a lot of aspects of his character. So I'm glad they just didn't oversimplify it too. He's the fat kid. He was the fat, sensitive kid. <laughs> there was more to him than just his weight. Yeah. And so then um, Teddy is the next one. I'd say he's the wild card of the group. Yeah. Uh, like he is all over the place. He like just, I would say that it's hard to say if, who's the most damaged of this group. But I'd say Vern is the least damaged. I would though. say Vern is the least damaged, yeah. Uh, 
the other three are pretty damaged kids in all honesty uh we've got we got the verbal abuse we got the mental like you know societal abuse and we got the physical you know, and all together abuse that Teddy went through. And it he it ends up transpiring into his actions with his friends at points. Right. Like he can't take a joke about himself. He feels anytime he's not taken seriously or he's mocked that he has to stand up with violence and swearing and aggression. And it's just like at any point, it's like, dude, are you about to like flip over this table and punch me for making a French joke? He's like, I told you I was French. Right. Like, and that's like, again, like, that probably just goes into a whole nother thing because his father stormed the beaches in Normandy. That's in France and he's French. There are like some feelings of like an imposter syndrome as like an American now when he maybe is a first generation American. Maybe his dad was not originally from right. America. I don't know. Like, right. But he seems to really identify with that being in all aspects of his identity really attaches himself to. Yeah. And he, you know, obviously he, he suffers through all this abuse. And then if his father truly is in the quote unquote loony bin, you know, then there's a history of mental illness within the family. Like there were times, Teddy definitely seemed unhinged, you know, lead to believe that. undiagnosed, he probably, Right. He probably has some sort of mental illness that's undiagnosed, especially at that time period. So, you know, I'm sure there were several people who were never diagnosed. We didn't even know things existed. At right. that point. So, you know, where he wanted to stand in front of the train and, you know, this was it. And they always kept saying, you know, like, do you want to kill yourself? Like, you, do you want to die? Like, how, like they reference, you know, him being saved. So he's trying to take these extreme things. So I don't know if he wanted to die. I don't know if he wanted to feel something. But yeah, he was definitely like, he was out there when they were guarding. And he was like, I'll take first watch. And Chris hands him the gun. I was like, I wouldn't have handed that kid the gun. Yeah. He, he's nuts. And yeah. Corey and does a great job. He's... So talented. Yeah, he, I mean, it's like the kind of secret in the room here, but most of these child actors were pretty dark and abused themselves. River Phoenix and Corey Feldman, especially famously. I mean, Corey Feldman's still around, but Corey Feldman has had a lot of alleged stories about how he was treated in Hollywood. And River Phoenix famously died outside of the Viper room of a drug overdose at a pretty young age also. So it's like, you know, River Phoenix, who plays Chris Chambers. I think we can go into Chris now. You want to do first or Chris? Let's go. Let's get Gordy out of the way. There's right. not too much to say about him by design. He's kind of the template for us. He's a vehicle for us to be part of this journey, essentially. He's the narrator. I think he's dealing with a lot of grief from his entire family due to their tragedy. And he feels he's to blame in something he had nothing to do with. Not living up to his brother's expectations. That, it, you know, just all these things that <clears throat> we both have siblings. Yes. I have a brother. I have an older brother. And I know there was a significant part of my life where I felt I was kind of the screw up. My brother double majored in college in four years. You know, honors, all this. Had a job since he was 14 years old. Things I didn't quite do growing up. And so... There were times where I seriously felt like kind of the loser, the failure of my family. And even if they weren't doing anything themselves to cause that, I felt that way. And so God forbid if something happened to my brother when I was younger, but it was like on his on the precipice of him going up, I would have forever felt I was living in a shadow I couldn't ever get out of. I think that is a such a huge amount of grief for a twelve or yeah. you know, eleven year old, ten. I'm not sure how old they were. Because they show you how different they are. So his older brother, you know, star of the football team, interested in girls. And Gordy is the quiet writer, creative type. 
um, that his father, I think just, and again, we're seeing everything from Gordy's point of view, even with his memories. So it's like how much of this is real or how much of this is his interpretation. You know, he just feels misunderstood. He feels like his dad doesn't really understand, you know, get where he's coming from. He feels like his dad hates him. You know, he has dreams of his dad saying like, it should have been you that died. And that's just like, I don't have children. I don't, I don't know what that's like. I can't imagine. I don't know if maybe he just never clicked. Like maybe there is a personality thing of just like, hey, my interests are sports and, and, and whatever. And your interests are different. And there was never that like initial bond that he had. But I feel like that can happen. That I mean, we're all human. You're not going to like everybody you meet, even if there's somebody that's part of your family, if you don't have things that you can feel like you relate to. But I can't imagine a parent would hate their child. No, and I think that with how over the top it was in his dreams, there's no way it was to that extent at right. all. That was just like clearly from Gordy's perspective. And it was Gordy had just, there's actually a lot to say about Gordy. Um, Gordy just had such ingrained insecurity in every scene that kind of focused on him. Mm-hmm. Whether it was the hat scene where he's just trying to get his brother's hat back, but like he cannot stand up for himself. And then the am I weird scene, that entire scene when he clearly was very, very smart, but smarts do not feel like they were like what was valued in the community of Castle Rock, which was like a small 1200 people, probably not many of them ever got out of Castle Rock and did anything with their lives other than going. And he was like smart and had had these abilities that like, for someone like Kiefer Sutherland is a complete threat because it's right. like, I'm a big idiot. Like the rest of the people. Right. Here. He knows he's not getting out. So he needs to use intimidation to keep power when, cause he knows he's never actually going to genuinely get it. Exactly. Yeah. And it's just like, I mean, you know, it's the whole time we have Gordy as the narrator and it's like, I definitely realized a little way through the first watch. I was like, okay, like he's clearly Gordy, but it did take me a little while the first time for sure. And but I just think he was the, you know, this movie, if it was from the perspective of Teddy, if it was from the perspective of Vern, if it was from the perspective of Chris, would have been such a different, more unhinged. You wouldn't have been able to follow the themes quite as clearly. I mean, so I do think that Gordy was kind of a perfect protagonist, but the main character, maybe not the protagonist, but yeah. the main character, it's Chris really Chambers. Yeah, he stole the show. Yeah, it's Chris Chambers. It's when you think of this movie, you think of him. You think of that look he has, how a kid his age has that much pain in his eyes who hurt hurt you baby like good lord because that's not just acting that is accessing a part of you that's been seriously screwed up yeah. which you know river phoenix brother of joaquin phoenix you know which a lot of people don't quite put together right away i believe both their parents also were performers so it could just be kind of a stage i don't really want to you know I guess, you know, conspire as to what exactly happened, but something, something happened. Both of those guys have serious, serious issues that they find uh, the screen to be where they get them out. So um, yeah, Chris Chambers, he's the leader. He's the cool kid. He's believes in everybody but himself and will put anybody, will bring anybody up except himself. He puts himself down constantly, discredits himself, both with his words and his actions. He did steal the milk money. And, you know, it's like, yeah, what are your thoughts on that? That. I, I don't know if I can actually talk about that scene with Al crying because that's the one that's where the scene that broke me, you know, Gordy even talks about losing his brother 
and mm-hmm. breaks down and cries about that. And I didn't cry and I cry a lot. I, I'm a crier, people. I cry about a lot of things. But for those of you that don't know, I am a teacher. I'm a middle school teacher and I teach 12 year olds. So like mm-hmm. these kids are my kids. These are my people. So yeah. to, to hear him talk about that, I mean, I can probably name kids like that, that are, are that are him. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't even upset that he got in trouble. He was upset that a teacher betrayed him mm-hmm. and that for school is a safe space for so many kids and to, to have that that adult figure in your life blow you off is so horrible and that's why he doesn't feel worthy because no one thinks that he is and my heart went to him because i have so many kids that are him that the adults in the building immediately that kid must have done it that kid's the troublemaker and you're just like your brother. I mean, it's it still happens. And those are the kids that you have to, have to, have to build up because they want to so bad. They want to do well. They want to get out. They want to do good things. And to just have your teacher crap all over you is awful. Yeah. And so there we go, guys. I knew I couldn't do it. <laughs> We have our first uh, tears on the show. Uh, mine are just welling up, but yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's really heartbreaking because you can see how much uh, trust was severed there for for Chris. And, you know, there's a positive, I guess, is that eventually I think there was that teacher or was that individual in their in his yeah, life that yeah, gave him the chance because you know well you never do it on your own there was somebody at some point whether it was a teacher or somebody else who was able to provide for chris what he provided for so many of his friends and other people and you know it's one of these things where you know it's really hard when they say goodbye at the end chris and gordy that was a, i i got all the way to the end till i cried oh my when, god i was like sobbing obviously yeah. i'm sobbing right now but yeah. uh that was just like I was I, yeah, go ahead. I think Please. it's just a relationship that's not I don't think it's explored. You know, I feel like a lot of times you have kids that are dealing with abuse, you have kids that are dealing with with death or even characters. But to have I, what I really enjoyed about his dynamic and what was so complex about him was that he wasn't really this bad kid. He just had this reputation and that everyone just blew him off. And and like, that's so easy to happen. And it happens okay. all of the time where your perception of somebody just totally takes over your judgment and you don't even give them an opportunity to be better. You know, for some for a kid to steal it and then turn it in is a big thing. That's a big deal. And yeah, he should still be punished for stealing it. But you took advantage of the situation of people just knowing that he did it, just whatever. Like he's still going to get in trouble. Nobody's even going to know because it was already stolen. And maybe even her motives were just like, well, it's already stolen. So whatever. And not even realizing what she did to him of just totally being like, here's just one more person in my life that thinks I'm a screw up. And just so many kids get so such shit from their home life that School is what saves them. And to have that teacher not be able to save him was a travesty. Yeah. And it's grace to my profession. Yeah. Well, I mean, that i not ever going to be able to really see that scene the same again after hearing that specific. I mean, and I think it's really spot on, you know, and it's just uh, at the end of the day, you know, the story of how Chris got killed and everything, yeah. it kind of does show that he never quite lost that part of him that willing to put himself in harm's way to take others out of it. So it cost him his life at the end, you know, and that is kind of sums up 
stand by me. Um, I don't think there's anything else that we need to cover. We spent half of the movie talking about it now. It's an 86-minute movie. We probably spent about 43 minutes or so talking about it here. Um, yeah, thanks for crying with me, everyone. I did well up. I did, and, you know, there were some tears, but no, I didn't get to sob like Christina. I tried, but... I, know. Just, I deal with know. this on the daily, everyone. Yeah, so and, I, yeah. I saw a lot of my real life reflected in that in that scene. But that was really... I really appreciate you sharing that because that is more than a worthwhile perspective to share with us. So um, we're going to get to our ratings now. I will, let's see, I'll have you go first uh, for the ratings here. We go off five stars like Letterboxd, half stars are allowed. What would your rating be for Stand By Me? Um, I'm going to give this a four. I think the highest I've ever rated a movie was four and a half. I don't know if I'm ever going to watch one that's going to give me the five. Only because I know that this movie was supposed to be short. I think the pacing was great up until the end. I just felt like something, we got to that dead body and then it was like, okay, we're here. And then, okay, we just decided that we're going to just like anonymously phone it in kind of thing. Like, I just felt like the ending was kind of just like a little bit too small. Like, we never really knew that they were worried about losing touch until it was like the ending when it was like, okay, like now we're going to junior high, mm-hmm. see you guys at school. And then it was like, all right, and then we all just lost touch. And, you know, Vern ended up getting married and Teddy wound up in jail. And, and it was just kind of like, not even, I would even say like 15 minutes more probably would have been enough. To just really wrap all that up. But mm-hmm. that that's really my only complaint. Other than that, this movie, the characters are so interesting. It's just really people pay attention to what's going on in your towns and your society because so many kids grow up like this. And it's, yeah. it's so awful. Yeah, and we can really extend it to adults who are treated yeah. the same way. They're treated this way as kids, as guilty till proven innocent, essentially. Yep. And then they grow up into these adults who we view as not surprised when they do so and so and so and we certain communities that get this the brunt of that uh for me i was expecting to like this movie i was expecting to kind of tell everybody like it's a little bit too cliche it's like kind of very familiar no it's pretty perfect movie pretty timeless and it's incredibly deep and a movie that i can't imagine seeing as a kid and viewing it the same as seeing as an adult maybe there which makes it kind of a great movie because i think kids can watch this and have a good time and remember you know the big scenes but not really understand what they're seeing and that can be fine and then but watching this as an adult once you've been through these things once you're looking back at Corey or you know mark or rob my friends from 12 years old that we just drifted apart but i remember when we were 12 we thought we'd never drift apart from this this bonfire we have in the middle of the woods where we were throwing hairspray cans into it and batteries like <laughs> we're gonna be friends forever turns out we weren't and you know it there's a little bit of remorse a little bit of just feeling of time and how it continues to slip away no matter what it's like that's a it really gets some deep existential thoughts uh for me uh which i love a movie to do four stars for me Four out of five. It's not, I'm, I'm a little more generous. I think I've had a couple five stars or maybe at least one. I think Girl Shy. But I really did love this movie. Uh, it is a movie I am shocked that I'll be revisiting, but I will for sure. I'm not sure why it was called Stand By Me. I mean, I kind of think that the title was not one of my favorite things. Like the music, I didn't really need the Stand By Me song at the end. I, I really that was- think that's why I think it was because the Stephen King movie is, um, or the Stephen King book is called The Body. And I think I actually read it in the Wikipedia that they used it. They called it Say My Me because they used the song. Yeah. And honestly, I thought the the song was kind of hokey. It was like, it's like very like, yes, Chris was, they were standing by. Like, I thought it was a little bit like, that was one of the only times where I thought it was too on the nose. Uh, So 
knocked it down for me. I guess similar to you, the ending was a little bit. Oh, oh, they just called it in. Oh, it's it. They're just right. disappearing. It's over. Okay, fine. You know, so right. we got all of this movie to get to this moment, and then yeah. we did nothing with it. I mean, it was very meta. I guess it's like it wasn't about the body at the end of the day. Like. Right. I get it, but again, like the stand by me part, the not about the body, the running out and spending time with his kids, like being the final shot, lame. C- could have really hit up to the four and a half, five where I'm, but four is still a really strong score. Four and four, it goes an average of four. Uh, so, <laughs> yeah. At some point, we'll do a little graphic and we'll get our average score so far of the movies through the first 10 that we're, and we'll, you know, we'll add it up, see what our average is. It's probably somewhere in the three range, I would assume, maybe 3.5 range. Uh, but, yeah, I'll be interested to see that. Um, but before we wrap up this episode, we get to one of – I have, like, four favorite parts of this podcast, I realize. One of my favorite parts, uh, the recommendation section. So we've got – we had a ton of great recommendations from people this week. Uh, we most likely will be returning next week with a guest. Uh, so stay tuned. We'll be letting you guys know about that as the week goes on. The particular guest that we're talking to said, you choose. And so we will definitely be happy to do so. I'm just pulling up uh, some of the recommendations from some of our fans. First of all, on Featured Presentation Productions uh, Facebook group, if you're not part of that, go ahead and become part of that if you're still on Facebook. Uh, we're always posting in there about our upcoming movies that are coming up, looking for recommendations. Also, uh, Twitter for both of us is open. Aaron J-A-Y Brooks is my Twitter, and Christina's is? At Christina underscore V-E-E 19. I'm never going to remember that, so that's why I always ask her. And so we get to our fans. First of all, this guy, Tony Heald, uh, not really important to the podcast at all, just the reason it exists. He suggested Fanny and Alexander. Uh, this is one I saw from a couple people. Jonathan Caro, I believe, as well, suggested this one. So... Had my attention right away. It's by a director I adore, a Swedish director. So it is a foreign film, Ingmar Bergman's film. And uh, the plot basically focuses on two siblings and their large family. It's during the first decade of the 20th century, and it's following the death of their father and their mother remarries. So it's kind of dealing with family dynamics. I can tell you there's no not heavy Ingmar Bergman film. This is uh, definitely up there. But that was one that was suggested uh, Chadwick Webb suggested uh, Titanic. We have your yes, husband. Thank you, Chadwick. Yeah, Chadwick, we've both seen Titanic. We will not be covering Titanic, but we but appreciate I it. Yeah, I, lo- I love it too. I know it's not cool to like Titanic anymore, but I still like it. So, like, I get it. Really? It's not cool to like Titanic anymore? I don't think so. Like, I don't oh, think, I think, like, for like film lovers, it's technically like not, but whatever. I don't care. I saw it four times in theaters. Yeah. It was in theaters for like four years. It was a yeah. phenomenal This movie, movie so. yeah. This movie is great. Yeah. And I haven't it's seen it in a long time, but yeah, maybe we'll, hey, you know, maybe it's on the list. Uh, to Stephen King for your husband, he says the Green Mile. Um, your husband likes getting rejected by you, apparently. Yeah, like, he knows I can't watch that. I know what happens in that movie, and I'm not watching that. Yeah, and then uh, J.D. Domash, Lawrence of Arabia, um, and then Seven Samurai was brought up by everybody and their mother because you have to mention Kurosawa to prove that you love film, you know. And I do love Kurosawa as well, but a few more: Scott Harvey in Brighter Summer Day, Lawrence of Arabia, Schindler's List. Those are all great movies. Briar Summer Day by director Edward Chang that I really like. It's uh, basically a 
it's taking slices of life out of a 1960s story about a Vietnamese boy. Really great movies, though. And then Malcolm X. That was brought up by four people. Seems to be one that people really like. I haven't seen. So those are our fans' fans' uh, recommendations. What do you have on the docket, Christina? I just want to watch Malcolm X because I love Denzel. That's yeah. where I am. Um, so, but first, I will say I want to thank everybody for taking time to fill out the Google form uh, for people that are interested in being a guest. We had 39 people sign up, which is so amazing. Like this is a 52 week, like a 52 episode show. We, we could book out the rest of the podcast. I'm here. so excited. So thank you everybody. Again, nothing is guaranteed, obviously because of schedules and movie choices and things like that, but we will try and get as many people on as possible because we cannot thank you guys enough for your interest in this. And just, yeah, just, Please know that some of the shows, obviously, that you guys are picking up for might not even be scheduled until, you know, September, October, November. So if you're not hearing from us, it's just because we are nowhere near uh, that category yet because we are going in order. Um, yep. But yeah, I just wanted to make you guys aware of that. Right. So your recommendations. Malcolm X. I'm not giving Literally, you. Okay. So you just have Malcolm X. That's it. Well, I had more, but you said all of them. So you okay, just perfect. talking, talking, talking. Shocker, yeah. everyone. Yeah, you know. One more. Uh, I have two more. Oh uh, Barry, Lyndon, Barry Lyndon, uh, Kubrick's like most underrated movie, I'm told. I have not seen it. Oh, wait. Um, I have one more, too. And, oh, my God, just uh, typical. Uh, and then my final suggestion, probably not going to get picked. The Kill Bill complete series. Watching Kill Bill 1, then Kill Bill 2. It is one movie. The whole bloody affair, Kill Bill. I'm just going to give an opportunity to have Chris Evans be on our screen and say Avengers Endgame only because <laughs> I love it. But I feel like it's not fair because I'm we're trying to pick movies we haven't seen. But everyone, just remember Endgame's great and Chris Evans is great and I love him. Yeah. Good luck with me picking Endgame. That's all I got to say. I'll probably um, watch it because I'm obsessed with it. Yeah. Well, you know, if we can get a particular guest on that, you know, has a lot of knowledge about Endgame, maybe I'll consider it. All right. until, until those people come along, not Endgame for me. Uh, I'm going to not pick Malcolm X. I'll just try to pick another movie and try to convince you of it. But I think we're heading towards Malcolm X. I won't drag this on too long. I'm going to say Fanny and Alexander against Malcolm X. <laughs> Fanny Alexander, the Ingvar Bergman 1982 Swedish film about a family in turmoil. So Christina, again, the, yeah, this is a podcast that people listen to about movies that are easy to talk about. <laughs> so I am then going to also stick with Malcolm X because I don't what nobody wants to, nobody wants to hear us talk about a Swedish film. They already uh, I, talk about a Spanish film last week, and I'm sure I ruffled some feathers with my hot takes. Yeah. Okay. I won't drag this out. Malcolm X is going to be our selection. It is directed by Spike Lee, one of my favorite film directors on this planet. I have seen Malcolm X a very long time ago, but I'm always down to dive into dive into his story. I'm going to attempt to do a little bit of research this week after I watch it as well. So I can really do some justice because I don't think I don't think that enough people really know what Malcolm X contributed to civil rights movement yeah. overall i think that uh and i do think this is um denzel's best performance of his career he is incredible in this movie and i'm really looking forward to talking with you about it and the different themes that come up the decisions that spike lee makes always make for great conversation so next week's over three hour film is malcolm x so mm -hmm. we most likely will have a guest but yeah that does it for episode 
10 of Digesting Cinema with Aaron and Christina. Yeah, anything else coming up for Christina this week that uh, you want to make the people aware of? Uh, well, first and foremost, thank you everyone for crying with me today. I love those moments that, was, that we shared great. with all of our fans and audience members. If you guys have not checked out the movie Trivia Schmodown yet, please make sure you check it out. It's already started. We are kicking things off, and uh, my match will air on March 25th. Beautiful, beautiful. So, yeah, um, Amaru's match is up now on uh, the movie Trivia Schmodown group. Most likely, if you're listening to this, you're already aware of that. But if you're not, go ahead and go over there and show Ruth some love, you know, and then plug Digesting Cinema in the comments. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> but for Aaron uh, and Christina... Keep digesting cinema out there and keep taking care of each other. Have a good one.